What's up, guys? You're listening to The Quest, a podcast that inspires founders and creators to seek eternal growth. I'm Justin Kahn, co-founder of Twitch and partner at Goat Capital. Every week, I sit down with icons and trailblazers from tech, Hollywood, sports, music, and more to uncover their human stories and bring you lessons in finding meaning and happiness beyond success. It's often easy to talk about winning, but I'm here to share the difficult stories that are often left out of the spotlight. I ask the questions nobody else asks, and you'll get the answers you won't hear anywhere else. You've heard me talk about it before, but if you're an entrepreneur or creative that needs to get more things done, then you're gonna love Magic Mind. I love Magic Mind because it tastes great, gives you consistent energy throughout the day, helps you relax through adaptogens, nootropics that keep you focused, and just generally makes me feel great. If you want to try it out, you can check it out with the code Justin20 at magicmind.co. So, Scott, how are you, man? It's good to see you. I'm doing well. It's good to see you. It's been a while. I wish this was in person, but and and so it is. So yeah, it goes. So it goes. Oh, I'm sure we'll see each other soon. So there's so much to talk about. I want to talk about anything and everything, but you have like <laughs> one of the most amazing, incredible stories that I've ever heard. And I loved your book. So I want to give you a chance to just tell the audience the background behind you, your story and Cherry Water. Maybe we can kick it off with that. Sure. You've done it a thousand sure. times. I, I'll make you, make I, you do I didn't, it one no, more. I don't, I, I don't, I don't mind. Uh, I'll, I'll start at the beginning. I was born in Philadelphia, raised in a conservative Christian home. Uh, my, my dad was a business guy. My mom was a, a writer. And when I was four, there was this terrible tragedy where we, we got carbon monoxide poisoning in a new home that we, we moved into. And on New Year's Day, 1980, my mom walks across the bedroom and she collapses unconscious. She was the, the canary in the coal mine. And after a bunch of tests, they found these massive amounts of carbon monoxide in her bloodstream. Dad and I bounced back after the leak was discovered and fixed, but mom never did. And she became an invalid. She became disabled uh, from this point on for the rest of, of her life. So it was, a, it was a weird childhood, only child, caregiver role. Mom wore masks for 40 years. So what, what happened to her body was her immune system just irreparably shut down. And she was unable to process any chemicals. So she had to avoid exposure to soap or car fumes or any sort of pollution. So she would walk around with these 3M, you know, N95 type masks and I would never see her face. Uh, I couldn't really touch her. I couldn't, um, I, I just kind of took care of her. I would, I would, you know, slide food, you know, under a door that she was a, she'd be able to eat. So that was childhood. Uh, raised in the church, played piano on Sunday. I didn't smoke. I didn't cuss. I didn't sleep around. I was that good kid who took care of mom and I wanted to be a doctor when I grew up so that I could help cure mom and, and then sick people like her. Uh, that didn't happen. I moved to New York City at 18 with a band to uh, rebel against my very said conservative Christian upbringing. I just kind of woke up one day, Justin, and said, you know, now it's my turn. Uh, I do want to have sex. I do want to uh, drink. I do want to smoke. I do want to do drugs. I kind of want to explore the opposite of all of the rules. And I learned there was this extraordinary opportunity to do this uh, and get paid 
uh, and it was called a nightclub promoter. <laughs> so if you wanted to rebel, not only could you rebel in style, uh, you could make a lot of money effectively partying for, for a living if you were good at this. So uh, that was that was my ambition. <laughs> Very different than wanting to be a doctor. I wanted to be the king of New York City nightlife. I wanted to be the biggest club, club promoter in, in New York standing behind the velvet rope. Uh, and that then led a decade-long pursuit in that business where I worked at 40 different nightclubs, throwing parties in New York City, throwing parties in Milan and Paris, and um, kind of chasing the scene around the world, chasing Fashion Week around the world. And, uh, you know, I, I probably got to top eight of, of the, uh, the, the food chain there in New York City. And we were selling $1,000 bottles of champagne, $25 cocktails. A thousand people would line up outside the club trying to get in, you know, Puffy sitting at table one, Jay-Z at table three, and me and my friend sitting at table two thinking that, you know, we were, we were really important. And it was, uh, it was kind of a, a long moral decline over that 10 years where, you know, I started with a pack a day, then two packs a day, then sometimes two and a half packs a day. You know, I was going to dinner at 10 o'clock, the club at 12, some disgusting after hours at, at five o'clock and often stumbling home at noon, drugged out of my brain, you know, taking an Ambien to come down and then do it all over again. So I, I had this life that looked great on the outside, but I was just rotting uh, yeah. inside, you know, morally bankrupt, spiritually bankrupt. And unfortunately, it took me 10 years, Justin, to come to, to that realization that, oh my gosh, I'm the worst person I know. Like I'm, I'm living a meaningless, purposeless life. If I die, my tombstone's gonna read, here just lies like a jerk that got a million people drunk. No. And I didn't want that on my tombstone. How did you realize that? Was there a moment where yeah, yeah you were mm -hmm. like, what am I doing? Well, I was in South America in a party town called Punta del Este in Uruguay. And I was with the jet set, you know, people flying down on private planes. And my girlfriend was in the cover of a fashion magazine at the time. And there was a yacht associated with the house that we rented. Like this was it. We went out and we spent a couple thousand dollars on fireworks. You know, this is just, this is what should make us all deeply happy. You know, the excess. And I remember there was this party on New Year's Eve and I woke up the next day and it was one o'clock and the party was still going on and people were drunk and drugged out of their mind. And we were on this beautiful compound near the sea and it was just like disgusting. And I remember I just wanted the music to stop kind of in that moment and then also metaphorically, I realized that there would never be enough. Someone would always have more. This pursuit of the better car, the more beautiful, successful girlfriend, the fame, the money, the status, it would just lead me to total ruin. And I would die young and I would die meaninglessly. And, uh, you know, I wound up coming back to my faith, I think, in a very different way as a 28-year-old, maybe without the, the religiosity and, and so many of the rules that had been kind of jammed down my throat. And, you know, I remember coming across a line in the Bible about uh, true religion is looking after widows and orphans in their distress and then keeping yourself from being polluted. And I'm like, I am 0 for 2. <laughs> I haven't done a single thing for you know, someone suffering 
right? Any sort of widow or orphan category. And not only am I the most polluted person, I pollute others for a living. Yeah. And I think there was just something so simple about that, like opposite, that on that vacation, I said, I want to make a radical change. This is not a pivot that is needed. This is not a small course correction. I need to just think the 180 degree opposite of every thought. I need to do 180 degrees opposite of every action. And that led me back to New York City, uh, a couple months of kind of struggling and questioning and, you know, what's next and what would I do? And then I got this radical idea to sell everything I owned and do one year of humanitarian service. And that was kind of this, this idea of like a biblical tithe for the 10 years I'd wasted. I'd give one back in service to see if I could be useful, to see where that might take me. And, uh, you know, the, the joke, uh, kind of quickly became nobody wanted to take a nightclub promoter for a year of humanitarian service because humanitarian service organizations are serious organizations full of serious people, not, you know, club rats. So I was denied by the first 10, organ you know, I, I applied to Doctors Without Borders and World Vision and Save the Children and you know, these orgs that I'd seen kind of advertised on TV and nobody, uh, nobody would take me. So I, I was very fortunate after about 10 rejections that one org said, Scott, if you're willing to pay us $500 a month, <laughs> Scott, if you're willing to go live in post-war Liberia on our hospital ship, you can join us. And I was like, yes, where do I sign? Here are my credit card details. When do you start? And they said, we start in three weeks. And just like that, my life changed forever in, in the most dramatic way going to Africa for the first time, joining this humanitarian mission, quitting smoking and drinking and drugs and, and kind of walking away from this, this life of vice to see where, you know, act three of my life might take me. So you got on the ship and went there and like got completely clean. Like I went out with a bang, Justin. I do remember the night before I had to surrender my passport and kind of become official volunteer crew. Yeah. I think I smoked 60 cigarettes. I had like eight or nine drinks. Yeah. I woke up with a banging hangover, you know, reeking of alcohol. Yeah. But, you know, there was something almost symbolic about this gangway and a 502 foot hospital ship that would then sail away to a new continent. And I could kind of leave my old life behind on land. I could leave all that stuff by the dock and then open up a new chapter, start a new journey. And it had to be extreme. So what were you doing? doing there and what, what did you experience there? Yeah, they took me on as a volunteer photojournalist, which I probably wasn't necessarily qualified to be a photojournalist, but I'd always taken pretty good pictures as a hobby. And I was a pretty good writer. You know, I was writing for the local paper when I was 13 or 14 and, you know, loved, loved English and, and writing. So what I convinced them was that if they allowed me this coveted role, this volunteer role as a photojournalist, I actually had 15,000 emails of people I'd gotten drunk. So I had a club list <laughs> that I could immediately start communicating to. And, you know, I kind of had a built-in audience that was just curious, like, where's Scott? Like, the last time I heard from him, he invited me to the opening of the Prada store in Soho, you know, and he's, where's Liberia? <laughs> like, that's a country, you know, on a hospital ship. So I kind of immediately went into storytelling mode and you know this part of the story, but my third day there, I was with all these doctors and these surgeons 
And I learned that the government had given us a football stadium, a soccer stadium in the center of town to triage all the sick people who would come. (laughs) And we had advertised the coming, you know, Western doctors from 40 different nations, volunteers and surgeons. They're coming to West Africa. Uh, They're coming to help. And I knew that we had 1,500 available surgery slots to schedule. So, you know, my thought was like, are there really 1,500 people this sick with cleft lips and tumors and, you know, flesh-eating disease and cataracts, like all the stuff we were treating? And my, my third day there, um, I'm, I'll never forget, it was 5.30 in the morning. I put on hospital scrubs. I grabbed my two Nikon D1X cameras, full batteries, jump in a convoy of Land Rovers with medical personnel snaking through the city towards this stadium. And as we approached the stadium, you know, I saw more than 5,000 people were standing in the parking lot waiting for us to open the doors. Wow. And that just, I remember just weeping, you know, it hit me. Oh my gosh, we're going to send more than 3,000 people home without help, without being able to see a doctor. We don't have enough doctors. We don't have enough resources. And, you know, Justin, I later learned many of those people had walked for more than a month. They'd walked with their children from neighboring countries. And we had to say, we had to say no. So that was really, really difficult. I kind of knew that I was in the deep end and I tried to focus on the 1500 people we were able to help. And I tried to focus on the good there and my job as photojournalist was to document 1,500 sick people, many of them deformed, many of them with leprosy, uh, many of them who had been burned by rebel soldiers who poured hot oil on them to disfigure them. And I had to document every single person for the medical library before their operation and then after their operation. So I got to see these, these transformations. And I, I got to see people who had massive cataracts see for the first time in a decade and be able to see their family or be able to see their children. So it was a really like radically emotional, emotionally intense year. And and I took 50,000 photos and I blasted my club list and there were a ton of unsubscribes when people were just freaked out. They're like, "I, I did not sign up for leprosy, you know, stories or photos or videos. But for the most part, people, they were moved to compassion by some of these stories and they began to send money to this group, this hospital ship, they begin to sponsor surgery. Some people begin to volunteer and try to follow my lead as well, you know, looking for, for purpose in their lives. So I guess I learned that the, the skill of promoting that had served me poorly, and I would argue the world poorly for 10 years in New York City, could actually be redirected to promote the amazing, inspiring, redemptive, humanitarian work of these selfless doctors. That's amazing. And when you were there, you learned something about another problem, right? And that's how it led you to <laughs> Charity Water. Yeah. So like, tell me about that story. Yeah, well, I finished a year and I just didn't know what next to do. So I just signed up for another year and we went to Liberia. At the time, Liberia had one doctor for every 50,000 people living there. The system was just broken after a 14-year civil war and people were really, really suffering. And I learned two things the the second year. I learned that half of the country didn't have access to clean water. 
So 50% of the people living in the country were drinking dirty, contaminated, diseased water from swamps and ponds and, and rivers and open sources. And then I learned that half of the disease was because of that, because people were drinking dirty water and didn't have access to sanitation and, and hygiene. So I, for me, it was this kind of eureka moment. I found the root cause of so much of the sickness that we're seeing. And what if I, instead of promoting these expensive surgeries, which we were limited to a couple thousand, what if I went and, and worked on the root cause of so much of the, the global sickness and suffering around the world, which was, which was dirty water, dirty contaminated water. And so how did you even go about figuring out how to start that? Like how to, how to work on that problem? It's such a, I think when we met, you said that there were 600 million people or something on that order of, of magnitude. About seven, yeah, about 771. Um, so about a 10th ten, of the planet. Yeah. It was worse back then. So we've made a bunch of progress. You know, I, I was 30. I was super naive. I had no experience with philanthropy or running a charity or starting a charity. And I was broke because nightclub promoters are not great at saving money. <laughs> we are fantastic at spending it, fantastic at spending other people's money. N not really kind of good stewards. So I came back after this two-year experience. I'd given all my money to Mercy Ships and the little money that I had. Wound up coming back to like a $60,000 tax bill from <laughs> my my club partner, and I had no place to live. So it wasn't an ideal place to say, you know, I'm going to be a social entrepreneur and go solve the global water crisis. But I think with, with so many entrepreneurs, this was a problem that I, I wanted, I needed to solve. And I found a place to live, which was on a closet floor in Soho, in New York City, free rent, walk-in closet. It was carpeted, it was <laughs> fine. Um, and... I had, I was armed with about 50,000 photos that I'd taken and I had them on a laptop. So I had this kind of eyewitness authority. I didn't just go on like a mission trip for five days and, you know, teach some kids English or paint an orphanage, the fifth color that it was painted that year. I had lived there for two years. You know, I had this experience. I'd walked with, with the doctors. I'd walked with, with people without water. And I just started going around and opening up the laptop and saying, here's what I saw. Here are the solutions and I want to bring everybody clean water and I need money to do that. And somebody gave me money to hire a lawyer to start a 501c3. You know, and I, I remember like starting a charity for dummies. I think they had a book like 501c3 is for dummies. And, you know, the next thing you know, there were a couple of volunteers working around this couch of my buddy's place in Soho and we we're raising a little bit of money and, uh, I realized, Justin, that as I was talking to people about this vision of a world where everybody had clean water, they liked that, but they were really cynical and skeptical when it came to charities. Yeah. There was a, you know, I don't know where my money goes. You know, are, are these people even competent? 70% of people believe charities waste their donations. 42% of Americans polled by USA Today at the time just said, we don't trust charities. So, you know, I thought, man, if I'm going to solve a problem this big, like the global water crisis, I wonder if there's another better model for philanthropy, for, for running a charity that might invite the skeptic in, that might invite the cynic in. And the only person I'd come across that, that felt like had a really innovative model was this billionaire called Paul Tudor Jones, 
And he started a charity in New York called Robinhood. And he said, I'm rich enough. I'm going to pay for all of the staff and overhead so that 100% of any donations coming into this charity will go directly to the people you know, who need them and directly to the program. So I remember writing him a letter saying, you know, Mr. Tudor Jones, I love your idea. You know, would you mentor me? And, you know, of course that never works. And he never wrote me back. But I did go down to, it was, it was Commerce Bank at the time, now TD Bank. And I opened up two distinct bank accounts with a few hundred bucks in each. One where we would put all the public donations, which I called the water account, and then an overhead account. And I said, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to run these separately like church and state. I'm going to go and find uh, business leaders or maybe entrepreneurs who could fund the overhead account so that we could promise to the public, you know, every single penny, dollar, pound, euro, million dollars would go directly to the people who needed clean water. So that was kind of the big idea, number one, not knowing how hard that would be, not knowing any better. And then the second idea was almost an extension of that. Well, if money is non-fungible, can't we use technology to track these small dollars down to the people or the water projects where those dollars were spent? And, you know, I remember meeting the founder of Google Earth right when Google Earth launched. And I realized Google was building this free place where I could geolocate every water project we would fund anywhere in the world. And I could send a donor a satellite image of the, the well or the water system they paid for and bring this kind of new level of transparency and connection to, to the space. Um, and then the third idea was just, uh, I wanted to build this epic and imaginative brand. I wanted to build a, the Apple or the Virgin of charity that wasn't peddling guilt and shame and you know, had a terrible website and bad UI UX, but, but was inspiring that motivated people to be generous, to help create this world where every human being had the most basic need met in clean water. So I put these three ideas together, 100% of the money goes, two, we're going to look for ways to use technology to connect people to what they paid for, where the donations went build this epic brand, and then, of course, work through local partners in each of these countries so that the work would be sustainable and culturally appropriate. So we would build the awareness, we would raise money efficiently, we'd build the movement, but we'd create thousands of local jobs if we were successful. And the, the well drillers would be Ethiopian or Cambodian, you know, or, or from or Guatemala, from these countries. And we would scale by creating local jobs in, in the local context. So that was it, man. Day one, the only idea I had, it was 15 years ago, was to throw a party in a nightclub. <laughs> so I just, I, I got a nightclub donated. I said, it's my 31st birthday. I'm going to give you open bar for an hour. But to get in the club, you have to donate $20. And there was this big plexi cube. And as people walked down the stairs uh, to the basement of the nightclub, they had to throw $20 in. And Charity Water, day one, collected $15,000 in cash. We took 100% of the cash that, you know, was carefully counted and documented and, you know, photographed. And we took it to a refugee camp in northern Uganda and we did our first couple water projects. And then a month later, we sent the completion photos and the satellite images back to all 700 people. And we said, you came to a party. Some of you might not even remember <laughs> coming. <laughs> it might be a blurry night for you. Uh, but you gave $20. And because of that, people on the other side of the world are drinking clean water. Here, look at the proof. 
And the response, Justin, was so powerful of that simple feedback loop that we said, let's just keep doing this again. Let's bake this kind of proof loop into the, the business model. Wow. And so you guys, that was a big innovation, like you talked about, was creating this loop, feedback loop. And I, I remember you guys innovated a lot with, you know, kind of combining technology and allowing people to get involved and feel their involvement with Google Maps and then Facebook. And can you talk about some of those ways that you innovated? Yeah. I mean, I think the, the first idea was just simply, let's just show people where the projects are and let's hold you know, ourselves and our partners accountable. As we scaled, I mean, we grew really quickly. We did 2 million the first year, then 6 million, 9 million, 16 million, 23, 28, 35, 45. I mean, this was working like crazy. This 100% model was working to pay for the overhead. And I built this, this group of primarily entrepreneurs and a lot of people from Silicon Valley who actually got excited about paying for software engineers or water program experts or accountants, you know, people in the finance team or the office when we had one. And then that allowed this kind of public movement to, to continue to scale. Probably the thing that I'm most proud of that's also been one of the most difficult is when we, when we really did start scaling across 29 different countries and 1,500 local jobs created and two, 250 or $300 million raised, we wanted to know more about the long-term sustainability of these projects. And, you know, we know that about 40% of the world's wells are broken at any given time, but no one knows which 40%. And some of them are very old and some of them are new. And the best practice is you go, you know, I go build Justin's well, I send you a photo, you put it on your fridge, you know, you and your family celebrate. And then you just kind of assume that everybody's living happily ever after. Well, that's just not the reality for a lot of communities. Sometimes a well will break and they can't fix it or the money's not there or the supply chain isn't there. So we actually went back to Google and said, hey, I have this crazy idea. You know, Nest is taking off and we're, we live in this kind of internet of things moment. What if I could create a smart well? What if I could connect a well in the most rural village in Uganda or Ethiopia uh, or Bangladesh to the cloud where the well could self-report its functionality. And if the well broke, that could start a system where a mechanic would go and act on that failure data and bring the well back online. This idea worked and Google gave us 5 million bucks as an innovation grant to go and try and work on this. We worked with 20 labs over the next four years. We produced our first sensor for the most common well in Africa. And then we, we dropped 3,500 sensors in Ethiopia. And the minute we did that, Justin, we actually got the largest data set in the history of the world when it came to rural water supply because nobody hooks up, you know, poor people's water systems. I mean, there's no, there's no financial incentive to do that. So we were monitoring over a billion liters of flow. And we also knew that 9% of them were non-functional. Right. So then that led to this, okay, can we train mechanics? Can we equip them with motorcycles and toolkits to go out and act on the failure, the failed projects and kind of figure out what went wrong in the first place? And this has led to this whole now multi-million dollar kind of R&D side of Charity Water, which is open sourcing these, these sensors. We're on version three of some, we're in version one of a pipe sensor now and hoping that kind of shedding light on failed projects 
will help more people drink clean water in, in the long run. And it all starts with the knowledge. So in my perfect world, Justin, years from now, I know exactly how much a 10-year life cycle costs. I'm offering a donor the opportunity to buy a water project. Maybe there's a warranty with that, kind of like Apple Care. And then three years in, the well breaks, uh, a mechanic, you know, jumps on a motorbike, heads out there with the right tools and the right parts, and the community actually pays for that repair. Uh, so the, the community's been collecting money through a water committee for the sustainability, but we've kind of helped put that infrastructure in play. And they know, you know, it's like, imagine if you were living in a rural village and you dropped your phone and the glass broke. And then the next day, some dude turns up and says, our data shows you have a cracked screen. Would you like to pay me $50, please? And I'll fix your cracked screen. So that's kind of where we're moving towards. And, and you know, we're still not there yet. And working in this environment is, is very difficult and in this kind of supply chain uh, moment in time, but we're, we're making a lot of progress. So what's been the net impact, you know, over the last 15 years of Charity Water? We've raised about $600 million now uh, from a million people around the world. We've kept the 100% model intact. So there are 129 families who pay for the overhead, more than half of them uh, entrepreneurs, you know, who have, who have started their own businesses. And we've given 13 million people access to clean water. So 13 million is a lot. Uh, I think it's 750 Madison Square Gardens, where I'm from in New York City, full of people. So, you know, Charity Water has sold out the garden two years in a row, but it's only 156th of the global problem solved. So it's about 1.8% of the way there. With again, you know, pretty pretty simple, clear vision of, of a world where everybody has clean water to drink, regardless of where they live or regardless of what circumstances they were born into. So we're the biggest water charity in America by about 4X, but we're still just, we're moving way too slow. And our ambition vastly exceeds our current capacity to raise money. How do you inflect that? It must be both very rewarding, but also frustrating in a way. It's kind of like being on that, that hospital ship where you have just the demand just far outstrips the supply, right? It's incredibly challenging. And, you know, so $600 million, I've spent 15 years raising that much. I know a bunch of people, Justin, as do you, who have built a company, you know, created twice as much value in half the time and no. sold it. You know, I have a friend who sold a gaming company for a billion dollars and it took him about six, six, seven years to build it. Yeah. You know, I'm like, I'm working on clean drinking water for humanity, for human drinking beings. And I'm not at scale. I mean, this is, it, it's interesting in social entrepreneur circles, I get asked probably the, the number one question is a version of, did you ever think you'd be so successful? You know, did you ever think you'd build a hundred million dollar a year charity? And the real answer is like, this is a fraction of what I imagined yeah. would have happened 15 years in. This is a fraction of what is actually possible with all the wealth out there, with the tens of billions of dollars sitting in inert, in donor advised funds, in foundations. I have not been smart enough or inspiring enough or created an organization yet that has moved enough money from these kind of, you know, inert vehicles to the mouths of people who need access to clean water. So we talked just when we jumped on, you know, you posted something on Twitter that I like, I screenshotted, I shared with my whole team. I updated a little bit. It's a 27 year stock price of Amazon. And 
you know, the first 20 years is just a flat line, right? (laughs) And then at year 20, you see this amazing hockey stick. And it's about these numbers, but in the first two decades, 7% of the value is created, 7% of the market cap. In the last seven years, 93%. So Charity Water is at year 15. And I guess, you know, I believe the best is yet to come. We had a donor uh, last year who I never had met, gave $10 million. Wow. Uh, a 38-year-old uh, entrepreneur who exited a business and had heard me speak seven years previous and kind of remembered Charity Water, remembered the work, looked us up. We said, absolutely know what to do with $10 million. You know, here's a proposal for you. So I think, you know, sometimes you're just showing up and that's a lot of people that are going to get clean water because of that. So I'm bullish about the future, but it's extraordinarily hard to raise money. It's extraordinarily hard to get people to care about a problem that doesn't affect them. Yeah. I'll bet that, you know, 99% of the people listening today have never had to drink dirty, contaminated, filthy water in their life. They have never had to walk eight hours in the hot sun with 40 pounds of dirty water on their back, like so many of the women and children around the world do every single day. So, you know, while everybody thinks water is a good idea, it's not political, it's not religious, it's just, you know, it's just a good idea for people. It's very difficult moving people to action. Although we've, you know, we've, we've moved $600 million to action. So yeah, I kind of go back and forth with, you know, we've done something this is better than filling clubs, right? 13 million people with clean water is better than getting 13 million people drunk. But it's, it's not where it ends. Got a ways to go, that's what you're saying. But I think that's right. Like the best is yet to come. You know, things take a lot longer than anybody ever thinks. I mean, I really salute you for sticking with it. I'm curious, like, what's the impact been for you? You completely changed your life 17 years ago. It reminds me of my own story in that I feel like I was very obsessed with, you know, making it in the material world and like achieving all of these things. And it was like very ego driven. I think often like people would have said, oh, Justin's one of the most creative people I know, or he's one of the living the most exciting life of anyone I know, but they wouldn't have said, you know, he's the kindest or he's the person who's there for his friends. You know, and I think that like, I've spent the last couple of years really on a personal journey trying to change that, like be the person who I want to be in a much different way than I had pursued before. And I'm, I'm curious, you've been on that journey for like a lot longer, you know, it's been like 15 plus years. How has that been for you? Yeah, it's a great question. I think, you know, I realized the markers of success were, were not true success. You know, the car, the watch, the girlfriend, the, you know, were you at the right place or the right party or, you know, in page six, I think a bit more maybe positionally, um, when I was only trying to meet my needs, when I was living for myself, I was trapped. Like I was, it's almost like you're in a cage. And when I had this life intention change where I said, well, how can I be useful? How can I give my time and my talent, and my money in the service of others? How can I kind of look around and, and see some of the needless suffering and contribute to easing that, you know, to stopping that suffering? There was such a freedom. It's like a big weight was lifted. Oh. And, you know, again, that, thank God that was 15 years ago and I haven't had a cigarette in, gosh, 17 years. And, you know, I, I ditched gambling and pornography and drugs and all those vices. So there's like a lightness to it. You know, I, I get to get up 
and advocate for generosity and to invite people to be compassionate, to use their time and their talent and their money in the service of others. And then actually get to see the result of human beings drinking clean water. You know, today, Justin, 5,600 new people will get clean water. Wow. Thanks to the charity water community. And then tomorrow, another 5,600 people are going to get clean water. And then Thursday, another 5,600 people are going to get clean water. So kind of in a 24-hour cycle, you know, I know that 5,000 lives are changed because of this work. So is it hard? It's excruciating sometimes. I mean, in 2019, I did 88 flights. You know, I fly coach. Uh, I've been to Ethiopia 31 times. You know, Charity Waters never bought a business class ticket for myself or, or anybody else at the org. So it's a grind sometimes. You're sleeping two hours a night. You know, you're being protected by soldiers with huge caliber weapons in Central African Republic or Niger, or, you know, some really sketchy parts of the world. But, you know, I don't regret the clubs. I don't, you know, my wife and I went out, I don't know, about a year ago and like, we went to a club and it was 11 o'clock and there was nobody there. We're like, we, we can't wait for people to come. Like, this is like an hour past our bedtime. Like, we got to go home. You know, our kids are going to be up at 6.30 in the morning. So, I, you know, I've been blessed with a, with a great family. I've got a wife who I was able to work with at Charity Water for many years creatively and, and two great young kids. And I guess my life's mantra is somebody sent me a picture of this sign outside a bodega in New York City over a decade ago. And it said, do not be afraid of work with no end. Do not be afraid of work with no end. And it's from a, an ancient rabbinic uh, text. And I, I think the idea of endless work used to scare me. You know, are we really going to get 771 million people clean water? You know, are, are we even going to make a meaningful dent? And I've come to kind of embrace that idea because it's really about the intention of your life important work in the service of others, being helpful, being useful, as you said, being a good friend, you know, being a good father, being a good husband, committing the utmost integrity to work and relationships. You know, it's the character that kind of matters. Yeah. And I imagine this day in my mind when we have everybody, the world celebrates, we all have clean drinking water, right? Well, I'm not just going to drop the mic and then try to go buy a Ferrari, you know, and try and go get rich. <laughs> Right, I would take everything I'd learned, I would take this whole generous charity water community of givers and say, what's next? You know, are people hungry? Are people going to bed without a roof over their heads? You know, are there people that don't have access to healthcare? Or yeah, I think we would, we would focus on another basic need. So I, I kind of love that idea. Like, don't be afraid of work that has no end. There's never gonna be a moment in time when people are not suffering, when there are not needs in our local community and in our global community. It's just trying to run that race to meet them and, and also, you know, living a healthy life and not getting burned out and, you know, trying to, to take care of your soul and, and your body. I love that. I think, um, you know, you said really focus on everything, like it's a very Silicon Valley mindset, but like, what's the scale of this? You know, what's the outcome and really be focused on only, you know, I only want to do something that's super high impact as fast as possible, you know? and. What I didn't really realize is like when you're in service to somebody else, yeah, of course you want to drive some impact, but it's it's not just for them, it's for you to live a life of service and like to be in service to other people is something that's like good for you while you're doing it every day, regardless of whether it has some incredible high impact at that moment or not. 
Yeah. I, I think that's like an incredibly amazing realization, you know, on your part. And I, I, and I love that message. I hope people out there listening can try to manifest a little bit of that in their lives. Like I'm just like a much happier person today, not in the pursuit of maximization that I mm-hmm. was five years ago in the pursuit of maximizing things in my life endlessly. And you're a lot more fun to be around, I'm sure. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So last time we talked about Charity Water, which a couple of years ago, you were working on turning it into a subscription. Yes. I don't know, business. Good memory, yeah. good memory. Um, yeah. Subscri- you know, you'd innovated over the first maybe five, seven years of Charity Water. There was this idea of like people were sharing on social media. They were doing like birthday campaign drives. Yep. And, but that was more of like a one-time event, right? Someone's like, okay, I have a birthday. I'm like, you know, raise some money, but then you don't collect from them or they're not driving any activity for like a long time, maybe until their next birthday or maybe even longer. And you wanted to move to like a subscription, kind of like a Spotify or or Netflix. Yeah, I got to give Daniel X some credit. Uh, He came to Ethiopia to actually look at a birthday well that he had funded. And we were in the back of a Land Rover in, in rural Ethiopia and how I remember the conversation. He's like, dude, your business model sucks. You know, January 1, no matter how much money you raised the previous year, your ticker rolls all the way back to zero. You have to go re-raise all that money and then grow from different people. And, you know, he's like, well, that's not how, you know, my business runs. Like I acquire a subscriber. I deliver value to them. Yeah, I want them to stay with me forever and then bring their friends. So that was really at the 10-year mark of Charity Water, the evolution of the spring. Let's launch a giving community, right? The average person has 10 or 11 subscriptions. Let's be the only one where they don't get music or they don't get movies or they don't get storage or free shipping. But 100% of their subscription helps people get clean water, the most basic need. And, you know, we even pay back the credit card fees. So it's a true 100% of what people give. And... You know, that five years later, that tripled the organization. You know, that helped take us to a $100 million a year org. And about 23% of our revenue now is subscription. So it's 75,000 subs, uh, members of the spring across 147 countries. And they're giving an average of about 30 bucks a month. So there are a lot of people, Justin, who can give 30 or $40 a month, you know, philanthropically without missing it. But it really adds up. And it's then our job, we've been doing events for this community. We've been trying to serve up updates. We've been building uh, out product online where they can track their impact, where they have affiliate links. You can see where your money's going. You can see your impact adding up over time as you consistently give month in and month out. And, you know, that's really become this new vision of, wouldn't it be cool to build the largest subscription giving community in the world? And no one has gotten to a billion. No one has gotten to a billion dollars in recurring donations. There's a couple that are close in the 900s now, but they've been around for 70 plus years. And, you know, to do that, you only need about 4 million subscribers. You only need about 4 million people to show up every month, right? Well, what does Disney Plus have? 100 million, you know, in year one? I don't know what Spotify and Netflix numbers are, but they're over 150 million. So... So that's kind of, you know, now big challenge. We don't have a marketing budget and I'm actually not delivering you any product that you're using. So I need to invite people to be givers, to be generous, to care about others through this community. But that's kind of the big challenge that I'm embracing at 
15 years. I mean, the TAM, the, the market opportunity of people who could care about clean water and who could give something every single month, knowing that 100% goes straight to people who need it and they can see that impact, feels huge to me. And I'm not exactly sure how to get it to scale without the, the traditional levers. Well, have you thought about giving, and this might be a stupid idea, but like, can you give people something like live strong, like a bracelet for every year that they are a subscriber? Uh, Maybe, I mean, NPR, right, does bags and, you know, there's a, there's a lot of kind of, you know, get a tote bag or get a mug. Um, well, I mean, it's more something like visible where like the longer you're a subscriber, the more like there's kind of like an impact from like retention. What if you could subscribe to a well driller? Yeah. Or a team? That's a super interesting idea. What if you could say, I want to subscribe to the team in Malawi of locals, of 200 locals who are out there every day and, and there was some sort of feedback loop and that's where your money was going. That, that'd be an interesting idea. And I'm, but I'm wondering like there's something, I mean, I think that Live Strong campaign was really smart because they had yeah, something that was, was visible. visible. And so is there a way to make it visible or like a way to form an identity around it to the people you know around you? as a subscriber. Yeah, I'm, I'm not sure what the product is. Is it a hat? Is it a t-shirt? You know, we've got merch. Um, I'm not sure that people will wear silicon bracelets anymore. <laughs> yeah. You know, it feels like- That you, might you be 2000, them. but maybe there's some new version of that. Yeah. Know? Well, if anybody has any ideas, hit us up. <laughs> I think it's, it, it'd be great to have that social proof out there. I'm a spring member. Um, I'm an advocate of clean water. And you know, I mean, we've made it really easy to join. And so if anybody's listening and you want to join the spring, it takes like 20 seconds. If you've got Apple Pay, it takes five seconds. Just go to thespring.com and we'd love to have you at 10 or 20 or 40 or 100 a month or whatever you can give. That, that is the future of charity water, I think. And that's the future of our, of our impact is a lot of people showing up with loyalty and, you know, consistency. You know, not just people driving by once and saying, oh, I heard a podcast, here's a hundred bucks and, you know, never coming back. Yeah. Amazing. Any final things you want to impart on the audience? Well, I'm just grateful for you and, and your story. And uh, you've been an inspiration to, to me and, you know, grateful for, for your generosity. And it's, uh, again, I think it's the beginning of this journey. And gosh, I want to do so much more. The team wants to do so much more. We know how to do so much more. So, you know, people that are listening that can contribute or, or have ideas or bring us in to speak at your company. You know, we're trying to figure out how to get to that next moment of scale and impact with a 15 year track record, you know, having made a lot of mistakes and you're invited to, to give us your ideas or, or reach out, please. We, we need the help. And you know, the beauty of clean water is that it can actually bring together such a diverse community of people who might fight about politics, they might fight about social issues, they might fight about religion, but it is an inarguable common good. It is the most basic need in the world, but yet 771 million people, you know, two Americas full of people, a tenth of the world today will go without clean water. Moms will give their kids dirty water knowing it's risking their lives. And it's a solvable problem. We have not created the will to solve the problem. We have not rallied the resources, but there's not a single person we can't help. There's not a single person alive today who needs to drink dirty water, who should be drinking dirty water. And, you know, look, I was born into a middle-class family in Philadelphia. And because of the way I was born, I'll never have to drink dirty water. 
my kids will never have to drink dirty water. But yet, you know, I'm in the 90%. And for 10% of the world, by, by no choice of their own, they don't have this basic need met. I, I guarantee most people have, have never thought of getting involved in this issue or, you know, it's just not something that's top of mind. You know, you woke up this morning and you had your coffee, you know, maybe with filtered water. You know, you, you took a long shower, you brushed your teeth, went to the gym and you, you had water there. It is something that it's just not really top of mind for us. It just comes out of taps. It's everywhere. It's ubiquitous. But that's just not the reality for so many of the world's humans. And we, we have to get this done. We have to get this done. The resources are there. There's so much abundance. And you know, hopefully we can continue to fight to invite people to make this a part of their story and invite them into this. And uh, you, know, you never know who's listening. So you're all invited to partner with us at year 15 and, and help us help us do more. Amazing. Thank you, Scott. That's an incredible story. Thanks for uh, giving me the opportunity. It's great to, great to see you and chat with you again. All right, guys, that was the conversation. I hope you all enjoyed it. If you like this episode, drop us a rating and comment on iTunes, and you can check out all my other content at justincon.com. I will see you all next week.